first question today uh, comes from Matt H. Ed, I think I'm gonna direct this one to you. Are Medicare fee-for-service payments increased 20% for COVID patients transported by air ambulance similar to increased hospital payments? Yeah, great. Thanks for the question, Matt, and, uh, and, and a great question. Uh, the answer is no, um, that 20% that bump that um, some of our hospital colleagues benefited from does not extend to the air ambulance industry. The one uh, advantage we did receive early on uh, was the uh, restoration of the 2% sequester, um, which was basically elimination of the reduction in reimbursement that we were expecting to get. Thank you. Next question. Does co this comes from Robert C. Does COVID-affected patients require a positive diagnosis or does it include persons under investigation? Who would like to handle that? Um, I'll take that one, Gary. So um, it is a person under investigation or a positive. So um, those would include anybody with signs and symptoms uh, that would be in a person under investigation and or someone who relates to you that they have had a positive test and you are transporting them. Okay, great. Thanks, Chuck. Here's a good one for us, gang. Will, co will QMC incur COVID-19 expenses that will be passed on to the clients? <laughs> <laughs> I can take that one. The answer is 100% we have... Just like you all, we've, we've incurred uh, substantial expense in our operation. Um, however, it's not, our, it's not our practice to pass those things along. As most of you know, um, your rate is your rate, and, and we don't do any sort of a la carte billing uh, for different things. So, um, you know, we're, we're here doing our thing for you, as we always do, um, with no change. Next question. This comes from Lisa B., uh, I think this goes back to the first stimulus payment, uh, folks. Uh, who would have applied for the first stimulus payment? I think she's asking, did anybody have to apply at all? At least that, that's the, the uh, way I'm reading this. So, you know, I can, I can jump in. You know, as, as you may know, if you received it, the, the first payment was sort of uh, automatic, and it was based on your um, historical Medicare um, spend or, or Medicare spend on you and a lot of you received those checks sort of or electronic funds transfers in your account almost anonymously but you do you did have to decide to accept or retain that money um, and if you did then technically you've you've got that first round of funding if you turn that back then technically the answer is no um, you don't you didn't participate in that first round of funding and of course um, everybody made their own individual decision um, in that case Chuck, did I miss anything there? No, um, just to just let everybody know, the calculation was your 2019 fee-for-service Medicare dollars times 0.6192. That was the calculation method that they used to dole out that first $30 billion. Thank you, gentlemen. This is for an under the category of uninsured patients for billing purposes. How will QMC identify and report that specific category? Yeah, so, so another great question. So as you, if you've looked at any of the regs, you know, there are a couple of criteria. First of all, they don't, their patient is not covered by 
um, uh, employer-sponsored insurance. The patient does not have their own insurance of any kind. Uh, the patient is not currently um, enrolled in the Medicaid program and, and all other methods have been exhausted. So that's sort of the definition as at least as it's been written in the guidance uh, as of today. And so then at that point, that person becomes what we would call a primary self-pay patient as distinguished from patients who have a self-pay balance after insurance is paid, they might have their 20% copay that's due, that sort of thing. So a primary self-pay patient um, uh, is gonna be the, those patients that qualify for technically being uh, uninsured. Great, thank you. This I, comes this from, is, go ahead, oh, Mary. I'm sorry, I, the only thing I wanted to add to that is that we also have to have, and before that can be billed, that it is um, either for COVID testing or that there is a, a COVID treatment or a diagnosis on that particular claim. So they are working on identifying those as well here, so. Right, thank you. This next question comes from Ted F. When will HHS round two reports be available and will they be on the client portal? Chuck? Um, I will talk with our ops people about that. Um, I, 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 we're going to have to have some history of this whole time. So um, certainly we'll have to have a period of time where those claims are processed, cleared, and then do a look back uh, by separating them out. Our operations people are working on those reports right now. As far as delivery, I think that will depend, Ed, and you can jump in here, depending on how the client interacts with us. Um, you know, uh, there's a number of different reporting possibilities um, available for that. So um, I think that's uh, to be determined, but certainly I can tell you that we have um, had numerous discussions at that level of developing the kind of reports that we know that our clients are beginning to request and that seem logical to track this experience and we will make them uh, certainly available to you uh, as soon as we have determined what the clients uh, will need and in are in their best interest. Thank you. This next question, I believe, reverts back to the first question asked, but we'll just reaffirm it. Uh, comes from Kyle K. Uh, does it have to be a, a COVID suspected or confirmed? And I think, Chuck, that you said it does, it can be a PUI. Yes, that's, that's correct. That, that, that's right. Person's under investigation, folks. Okay, uh, let's go to the next one here. <clears throat> Do you have or can you develop a weekly report detailing the amount of income that we receive as a result of the current balance billing? Yeah, so this is, uh, I'll take this one, uh, G. This is a great question. And uh, any of our clients who've worked with us to try and make that determination about whether or not they want to be in network or out of network, uh, we've already worked uh, these reports up for you. Um, and so the challenge here is um, there's a lot of different factors at play as you're evaluating whether or not to go ahead. And I'm assuming the background for this question is, hey, look, do I go ahead and take the money and give away my rights to be able to do balanced billing? What's the economic analysis of that? So. Um, it's a complex sort of computation because it's not just um, what the difference is between what the offered rate or the in-network rate is and what you're charging. It's what are you actually collecting historically from that particular payer on that population of patients. So we do have some reports 
that we can isolate out for, for those payers with which you're out of network. Um, in this case, it would be everybody, right? Because the requirement is not just for Medicare and Medicaid patients, but for all payers, you're not supposed to be balanced billing, um, is to, to do the whole analysis to figure out um, what are you actually collecting on a per transport basis. Um, and so you probably have seen something that it's an account analysis report. There's a lot of different names um, that we use here in the organization, but it's a basic account analysis report. And we'd sort that by payer, which would give you an idea of historically what you've collected um, on those claims. So what I would encourage you to do is talk with your account manager on your regular uh, calls with your QuickMed team and, and request that report for yourself uh, to be able to do that analysis if you're trying to come up with, do I, do I say yes or not say yes? Great, thank you, Ed. Next question, this comes from Bud S. How will the stimulus change any of the insurance contracts we currently have in place? I think I'll take that one. That's a good question. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I, um, it really won't change the contract. Um, the major insurance players have committed to the administration that they will not assess a copay. So Aetna, United Healthcare, um, even some of the regional players, I think UPMC, Geisinger Health Plan on the eastern side of Pennsylvania. So uh, many, many of your major insurance, the blues as well, have committed to not assessing that copay. And so you will see that your payment will potentially be different than what you're normally seeing because if you're in network, they will be paying that copay along with uh, the payment that they typically remit to you for those kind of claims. But as far as changing the contract, um, I see no uh, window where there would be any uh, change in your participation agreements. And Ed, if you have any other information, uh, feel free. I, I just, I don't see a window for that. Uh, do you? No, I, I concur, Chuck. I think those, those agreements that you have will, will stand. Um, now, going forward, there may be some um, change in your perspective and on the payer side as to whether or not, you know, you or they want to be in network, but um, nothing directly related to the COVID response or payment. Great. This next question comes from Marie B. Is QMC going to automatically identify patients who are COVID patients without insurance in order to bill under the provider relief fund when it opens for billing? Yeah, so, so great question. So we, we certainly um, are working on our end to identify uh, COVID patients. I think you'll probably agree that the real challenge is what constitutes a COVID patient. So obviously those that are confirmed and many of our clients transport patients uh, sort of on an interfacility or schedule basis where that diagnosis is known up front. Um, the suspected patients, um, you know, who are, who are symptomatic and, and have all those uh, sort of criteria that, that um, Gary and Chuck alluded to earlier, obviously go in the bucket, um, but it's, sometimes it can be challenging. So for example, the question we're, we're grappling with is, at the time you transport the patient, they don't have any signs or symptoms. We don't know them to be COVID positive, but what happens if you get a call three weeks later or two weeks later notifying you so you can notify your crew members who are on that trip that that patient is now COVID positive? We may not have that information. And if we've already run the report for you, for example, um, that patient may not show up as a positive COVID patient. So it's not, a, it's not an exact science. 
it, it's, you know, we're trying to make a best effort to help identify those patients, looking at the documentation that you and your teams provide to us. Um, and we certainly are capturing those that, that are obvious on the front end. Uh, we do have, there are some challenges on the back end. And as I mentioned earlier, those patients that end up as true primary self-pay um, would be the second slice of that analysis to give you a report that, yes, they match the COVID criteria, and then, yes, their primary self-pay. We've exhausted all of their efforts to try and find insurance. Um, there's a little bit of a twist on that one as well. Um, what if the patient applies for Medicaid after the transport? And now downstream, a week or two later, or a month later, is now, now has Medicaid, and we're not aware. So, um, you know, it's not an exact science. And Chuck, please jump in if I'm missing anything. There. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm glad you brought up the Medicaid thing, because one of the concerns is, you know, with 26 million people out of work within the last few weeks, um, those people who lose their health insurance from their employer, the next thing they're going to do is they're going to make application for Medicaid in many cases. Um, we're already hearing that those sites are overloaded. Uh, you've heard the unemployment sites are overloaded. So we're going to be cautious because we want to make sure we don't miss that retro MA, uh, but certainly we'll, we'll apply a timeline that's reasonable uh, to verify because we have to provide that at the uninsured portal but also enough time to give that process to work through. It's gonna be a little bit of a balancing act and, and we're already beginning to talk through about how that'll play in real time. But uh, again, be assured that we're, we had those discussions, we've had them already and aware of the variables and certainly we'll do everything we can to expedite the process, but still be reasonable and protect you from filing a claim that later on we'd have to back, uh, backtrack. Great. Next question comes from Mary C, but not our Mary C. <laughs> comes, uh, the question is, can you identify any scenario that suggests by accepting this funding, we may lose more income than we have received in this stimulus package? This is a question that has been asked of us a number of times uh, and is a very good question. Yeah, I'll take that one um, because we have <laughs> we have answered it so many times, and it's a great question, and 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 I expected that to come up today. So it really depends how long this thing lasts, um, and that's the unknown. So, you know, if if you first of all, you have to remember that the it, this doesn't involve Medicare, Medicaid on the balance billing part of this, so that factors out quite a few claims. So we're talking about commercial and the true uninsured. So with that in mind, if you are a total out of network service and you're not in network with any insurances, the longer it goes, depending on how much money you receive, there may be a risk that by not balance billing and accepting the funds that the money you received may not be as much as you think it is without the ability to go back and balance bill up to your full charge. Um, however, uh, the other side of the coin here is, you know, the dollars that are given to you is, an, is meant to be a stimulus to help you buy those things that you need right now, PPE, decon, uh, offset your losses that all of a sudden you had a 25, 30, 40% uh, run volume change. So, um, you know, what you got to think about is, do I need it now? And is it worth the risk in accepting it? of being later, uh, you know, and, and that's something that each individual service is going to have to sit down and kind of brain think out. But uh, the longer this goes, that potential, I think, increases. 
because the number of claim incident will increase. So it is something that you should be aware of and also be aware that if you do not accept that first round, then you're not eligible for the second one uh, if, if you would need it later. So I, I think be cautious, but um, if from what I'm hearing from uh, the, and we've talked to a lot of clients, Gary, haven't we, in the last few days, seems that most everybody believes that this is something that's valuable and they are going to retain that funding. So just so you know, that seems to be what the majority of folks that we talk to with our clients uh, are going to accept that and keep it. Great. Along those lines, Chuck, Lisa B. asked the question, how would I know if my stimulus money was processed to even accept or deny the monies? Okay, so it, will, it should have shown up, the first tranche should have shown up sometime between April 10th and April 17th. It would have been remitted to one of two places, either the bank account where you receive your Medicare funds or if you have a bank account for the purpose of receiving some kind of federal grant money, we have seen some clients find that money there. And it will be labeled with the term HHS. So it had to show up sometime between the 10th and the 17th of April and have a tag on it HHS. Great. Thank you. I, uh, Gary, I just ahead, wanted Mary. to add um, another um, thought. When, when clients are looking at whether or not to accept the money um, as well, I think the reality is so many people are now unemployed and any dollars that they have are going to go um, more for their daily living expenses and food and so on. So what you also have to consider is if you would choose not to and then uh, want to balance bill uh, the patients or go directly to the patients, weighing in that factor is will you actually get the same percentage or money from those patients that now have other financial obligations? Excellent point, Mary. Something yeah, Mary, that's good a point. It's a great point. Need to think of it globally. What's going on in the world, not just uh, not just in the, your own organization. Good point. Well, then, Gary, one other point to public relations wise, how how do you want to represent to your community? Some of you that are community based, you know, will there be pushback from people who get bills? I'm just throwing that out there for what it's worth. You know, um, you, you, you know, you have to examine and know your market. And will the market tolerate that kind of balanced billing for COVID patients? I think it's something to think about. And that's kind of a non-billing, but it's a billing issue for sure. Okay. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Mary. Back to Ted F. How will CMS be re reimbursing for COVID treat no transport patients since they have been pushing for the stay-at-home care since the beginning of the outbreak? Good question. I I can speak a little to that. Initially, CMS um, had, had kind of put some information out that they were going to be looking at treat uh, no transport and making some arrangements. That has not come through as of yet. Um, however, commercial payers, you know, some of them do pay that service. So uh, there has been recommendation if you are doing um, a, a treat but no transport, to use the code, and I'm not as familiar with the code, but I have it written down on my cheat sheet. Um, and it's, it's for, uh, more for the commercial payers at this point. It's A0998. But again, as of right now, Medicare will not, will not pay that. And again, it could change, 
Um, but as of right now, they have not uh, put forth any, any monies to reimburse for that. Thank you. Okay, next question. Is this stimulus funding benefit to the under or uninsured restricted by an end date or is it, it open-ended? Yeah, great question, uh, Chuck. I think, uh, you know, that's the unknown. I mean, Chuck talked about it in his commentary about making that sort of cost-benefit decision about taking it. You know, there isn't, there isn't right now a defined end date. I think um, obviously there's how long will the money last, um, how long will the situation last, and even as we move forward, what's the new normal? There could be some of this, some of the change in practice could continue to, to go to the last question as well about the treat no transport stuff. So um, I think right now there's not a defined end date uh, that we know of, that we're aware of. Okay, thank you. Next question is from an anonymous attendee. We've got a few of those today. What are some of the repercussions or restrictions we would have moving forward if we accept the first part of the stimulus package? Yeah, I'll take that. So uh, we've talked about balance billing. Let's uh, loop back and just make sure you understand. Um, the COVID affected patient uh, who is transported by an out of network provider or supplier ambulance is not able to be balance billed beyond what that patient would normally expect to incur such as a copay or a deductible under the plan if that provider were an in-network provider, which means that if you are not participating with a, an insurance and you transport that COVID patient who has that insurance coverage, you would be limited to balance billing only equal to the amount of what potentially the copay would have been if you would have been in-network. Also, you cannot balance bill the uninsured as we've just been talking about. Thank you. We go back to Kyle K. How is all of the tracking being done and who has final say? Not sure I understand that full question, but um, anybody want to comment as far as the tracking goes? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because I'm not sure exactly what Kyle's asking uh, with respect to tracking. Um, it is worth noting, uh, you know, there, there is some reporting requirement uh, on the provider and supplier side now if you're accepting these funds. And there's different levels. And I believe the cutoff is if you, in the combination of the tranches, if you received over $150,000, um, there's a higher reporting requirement, uh, a higher burden of proof, if you will. And, and under the $150,000, it's, it's a little less onerous. But nonetheless, I, I think that there is going to be some need at some point uh, to answer a series of questions about uh, how you use the money, for example. And I know there are some specifics in the regulations about, uh, you know, using the money for COVID-related activities. Now, there's, you know, what is that? Like Chuck mentioned earlier, people are going out buying PPE. Uh, they're having to reconfigure their, uh, their base operations uh, with respect to the, the physical plant, the building, and, and social distancing requirements, those kinds of things that might be related as well. They're doing some specific things in the, in the way of disinfecting the vehicles and other types of things that all have expense. So I would encourage you, and we've done the same thing at QuickMed, is we're trying to track every sort of unique expense that we've been uh, saddled with related to responding to this, this situation. And at some point, someone's gonna ask us, uh, 
you know, what the impact was. And so I think the, the suppliers and providers should be doing the same thing uh, to be able to uh, track what they're spending and, and uh, you know, how their operations have changed for sure. With respect to uh, reimbursement, you're going to have access to the, the reports that you typically get from us. And there's probably, as we mentioned earlier in the call, there are going to be a few more that are going to be unique to tracking the um, COVID reimbursements and COVID type patients. So um, you'll need to have that at some point to present to the authorities, wherever that might be. Yeah, the other, um, the other caution that we've been cautioning clients is if you receive other um, funding, say a FEMA grant or a state grant, um, there is a caution that you not spend the stimulus money on the same items that you've been granted money for from that other avenue. Um, so for example, if you applied for the small business loan and you got eight weeks worth of um, uh, payroll uh, prop, I want to say payroll protection, but I, I, it's PPP, whatever that, I forget the, I've got so many acronyms swimming in my head. <laughs> but um, if you, then you would use the stimulus money for that because you've already received that. So just be careful that you have a clear paper trail and that there's a, um, you know, you're using the money for something you're not being reimbursed for uh, from another avenue. Great point. Thanks. I'm going to a question by Matt E. In relation to Chuck's point, my understanding was that the balance billing is only prohibited on COVID patients, suspect or suspected COVID patients, and that this did not affect other trips. For example, a car crash with ankle pain, you would still be allowed to balance bill. That's a question. That, that is correct, according to whatever rules apply for that particular claim. However, we will caution you, we've talked with the compliance lawyers, and if after the fact, under the Ryan White Act, the hospital calls you and says, hey, Matt, um, that guy you brought in from the MVA, he tested positive while he was here. We would have to apply the rules to that. So just, just so you're aware of that. Uh, but yes, you are right. Uh, it only affects the COVID-related patient. Thank you, Chuck. To Alisa H., in our area, few ambulance services are in network with anyone other than Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. You think the Anthem in-network rates are fair estimates for us to use when considering what other insurers might pay if we take the stimulus dollars and are prohibited, and are prohibited from balance billing? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And my gut says no, um, because, you know, those, those arrangements are so different. I mean, we see it. Um, in different parts of the country. We've got clients, uh, you know, right across the street from each other in the same counties, and the rates that they're getting can be very different with the same payers. So, uh, and that's one of the challenges, right? We've talked about that in, in our, with our senior leadership team uh, with respect to how we help you all make that decision and provide information for you. And, and the answer is really a difficult one to get at because all those rates are different and those contracts are all confidential technically. Right. Mark H. writes, a clarification, please. If we accept the first stimulus payment, does the in-network billing requirement only apply to COVID patients or all patients? And since this money has already come in, is there an end date at which we revert back to normal billing? I think we've covered kind of parts of this question yeah. already. Definitely just the COVID patient and no end date. Thank you. Okay, here's a good one. From Amy W., there is a local dialysis facility that is requesting COVID testing on any and all persons they suspect 
may have been exposed. While the results are pending, they are requiring that all patients be seen at one specific location for their, their dialysis. The only means of transportation for them is, of course, ambulance. Is there any way that Medicare will be reimbursing for this type of service? They've hit us well, pretty good with some great questions yeah, today here, folks. That's a question. Um, yeah, I think what we have to remember is medical necessity rules have not changed. So the patient must be medically necessary, and that would mean that transportation by any other means would be contraindicated. So you have to evaluate that patient just like you would at any other time. Um, COVID does not release medical necessity requirements. And so if that patient normally is transported by a wheelchair van, there's been some argument uh, within the industry that uh, we can't, um, de uh, we can't um, uh, protect a wheelchair van is not a sterile field environment uh, as much as an ambulance. But they don't seem to be bending on this issue too far. So um, judge the medical necessity rules as you would normally. And I think that determination has to be made based on the patient's condition at the time of the transport. Great. Yeah, and just to add one, one caveat, and I think that might have been part of the question is, is what about alternate destinations? So if we're transporting to an alternate destination that typically wouldn't be reimbursable uh, under ambulance reimbursement policy, you know, we're talking mostly about government payers, Medicare, Medicaid, but a lot of the commercials, as you all probably know, match those same criteria. There is some relaxation on destinations, um, you know, pick up and drop off destinations because of the crisis. You know, for example, in New York, they're transporting people to the tent hospital in Central Park. That typically heretofore would not have been a reimbursable transport, but because that's a temporary COVID facility, presumably those transports are being reimbursed and, you know, by, by the major payers. So the alternate destination thing does apply, but as Chuck mentioned, please don't, don't think this is a windfall. This is an opportunity particularly in dialysis folks, you know how much, and Mary can probably comment on this, how much focus there is on those repetitive types of transports and scrutiny. Um, you know, let, let's not open up the floodgates here and get in trouble. That's, that's the message that you ought to hear from us loud and clear. Right, and I think, you know, I've attended multiple webinars and sessions on this, and there is such a focus saying, be sure that you're still following medical necessity um, when it's appropriate, and then, you know, what, what I'm hearing is that, you know, audits are going to come back and they're going to come back in, you know, six to nine months. And, you know, they're going to be focusing on, they spend an awful lot of money on these programs. So have your documentation in line, take time to be sure that you have everything documented because it could be six or nine months from now that you're going to have to defend that, or it might be a year, a year and a half from now. Um, so always better to take the time now to have the appropriate documentation in place. Thank you, Mary. Here's a good question. Is there a defined time period to use the funding before any unused portion must be returned? That definitely needs clarified. Um, I, we have looked, I have not seen anywhere where you have to spend the funds within a certain amount of time or give them back. I've seen no written guidance to that whatsoever. I've looked, um, and this is a question that's come up several times, and right now at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time on April 28th, I will say no. At 12.30, we might end this session and find an email that says differently, but right now in time, no. 
be a do-over then, huh, Chuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mulligans. Mulligans. All right. This one comes from Josh W. Is uh, he said your service? Uh, if your sir, oh, excuse me. If your service is performing in-home testing for COVID nineteen, is that billable to insurance? Oh boy, um, that's a good one. I I don't think I know the answer to that, Mary. And yeah. I think I think the answer is typically no under the ambulance side of things. And this is there are a number of, of providers and suppliers out there that have gone. Um, the extra nine miles, and I don't want to get down a rabbit hole here, but there are a couple uh, of agencies, and I'm aware of some progressive agencies, that have gone ahead and gotten uh, laboratory CLIA certification so they can bill for some of those lab tests, you know, some of the point of, point of service lab testing that's done. But that's not under the ambulance regulations. It's not under ambulance reimbursement. It's reimbursed under their status on the CLIA side of things. And, th and there are a number of folks um, that can bill professional fees. So your medical director may be able to build some professional fees for telemedicine kinds of things. So there's a, there's more flexibility now on some of those fronts, but um, in-home testing um, and treatment kinds of things, other than the typical, um, you know, treat and no transport uh, programs that are in place now are generally not reimbursable. Again, go back to the core ambulance uh, billing regulations and reimbursement regulations, and those things generally are not allowed. Yeah, I would go back to the telehealth guidance that we were recently given as the closest thing to that. And they definitely denied, there was some talk that ambulance would be able to bill directly for telehealth. Um, they came back and said, no, we're only permitting the healthcare professional to bill for telehealth, but that the ambulance service could contract with one of those professionals and receive almost like a, we do joint billing, ALS the BLS would be the best analogy um, that you can bill that healthcare provider and he or she can pay you a portion for the hands-on part of the telehealth. So um, I, I have not seen anywhere where uh, testing codes would be allowed to be reimbursed to the, uh, within the ambulance world. For the ambulance, right? That I was going to say the same thing. I, I've certainly seen COVID testing covered, but, but not um, by our industry. So again, that could change. Um, you know, as they need more people to do the testing, but as of now, I have not seen that that is permitted. Thank you. Next question from Stephen S. Other than the balance billing restrictions, do you foresee any other pitfalls to accepting the first round of CARES money? Um, just making sure that you have a clear paper trail how you spend the money. Absolutely. Because uh, you're, you're definitely, it's going to be like a grant at some point, And they've told us that you will have to give an accounting of what you spent the money for. Um, the attestation statement that you sign off on when you go to the portal to accept it. Uh, I would suggest that you print that, uh, have your administrators review that carefully. You might even want to have your accountant review that. You might want to have your legal counsel review that. Um, the, it, it is printable as a PDF before you, accept. So you might want to pull that off, uh, go over it with a fine tooth comb, make sure that everyone in your uh, administration and decision makers are comfortable with that, your leadership, and then make a decision following that. But other, other than the balance billing, there's nothing direct uh, that I can see other than making sure that you have a way that you're going to be able to report how you spent the money. Yeah, and if I could piggyback on the Chuck's comments, uh, the second round, you know, the portal that, that just opened up and, and the 
rules and regulations. I, I did, as Chuck suggested, I went through that document. One of the things that um, made the hair on the back of my neck stand up is that you're going to be supplying uh, uh, lots of data, tax tax returns and and um, cost loss estimates and things of that nature. And for a lot of our not-for-profit um, type clients, you know, you're filing Form 990 anyway. A lot of that stuff is public information for a variety of sources. But a lot of uh, private ambulance services, private um, uh, entities, you should look very carefully about the things you're going to have to disclose and that, that outsiders, other people, uh, perhaps competitors, are going to be able to see after the fact because this information is all going to be public by virtue of the fact that you, you accepted that money. So there are some things on the second round uh, that we're just going into now that gave me a little bit of pause that you should consider. As Chuck said, you know, review it and be thoughtful about your decision. Sure. We're getting a number of just inquiries asking for that slide that we had up at the beginning of the program. I'll put that up at the end, but if any of you would like a PDF copy, just send a request to covidhelp at quickmedclaims.com and we will make sure we get you a PDF out. So no worries, we'll get it to you. Um, Mark H writes, we're still trying to determine whether or not to keep the first stimulus payment with strings attached. Will QMC be able to give us an estimate on the difference between what we would normally have collected versus the in-network amount we would have only be able to collect if we keep the payment to assist us in making this decision? Yeah, and so as I think I mentioned earlier in the call, um, we've helped a number of clients sort of make the decision around being in-network and out uh, with commercial payers and such. So please talk to your account manager and or your billing director uh, about generating the report that's necessary. And again, just one caveat, and Mary pointed this out earlier, more from a, a human relations perspective, but you know, when we do that analysis, we're looking at historical data and how much of the, if you're non-participating, you're relying on patients to either give you the money that the insurance company paid to them directly and or any amounts above that amount, so patient balances, and the historical ability of patients to pay is different now in the crisis. Um, and so if you typically, if you collected, just for argument's sake, you collected 75 cents on a dollar for all those out of network um, um, claims that were billed historically going back to 2018 and calendar year 2019, I'm not sure you can expect to get that same amount of payment, 75 cents on a dollar under the current economic climate and that which probably will proceed in the months ahead, perhaps years ahead. So. You have to make the decision with a little bit of a jaundiced eye, meaning I wouldn't take that full number. If your number is 76, 75 cents on a dollar, I would discount that back a little ways as well to be safe. Um, so just, you know, my two cents. Okay. Robert C. Once again, on the AAA call yesterday, they stated March 2019 as the reference period and March 15th through April 14th as the measurement period for the purpose of loss calculation. Is this your understanding as well? Yes, it is. Uh, and then if I think if you recall, because I was participating on that call, there was discussion about using whatever your particular fiscal year reporting period is for those, for, for the numbers that they need. But I, I, I wrote notes and I have that exact, what um, he just provided to us in the question. So I do understand that to be the case. Okay. An anonymous question, are there any stipulations on what the CARES Act stimulus round one must be spent on as far as does it have to be spent on salaries or equipment? 
Well, it, it, the, the attestation statement says that it should be spent on preparation, prevention, and or to cover losses. So it doesn't necessarily talk about salaries. Um, I know that there is a prohibition of spending it on um, in, in the municipal world on level anything above a level two salary, which I believe is 189,600. Um, so you certainly can't apply it to that. Uh, but it's very uh, vague on purpose as to what they said you could spend it on, but it must be COVID related or loss related. So if you're not getting any other kind of stimulus or uh, grants to cover payroll, then I think that you could cover losses in payroll um, using that money. But I, you know, just be cautious that there's a clear paper trail that connects back to it being a COVID reason as to why you're covering that. Okay. That's a, that's a kind of around the barn answer, guys. Any, anybody can do any better with that. It's a tough one. No, I, I think you're exactly right, Chuck. I think that's, that's the answer. <laughs> you know, it, it makes it very general on purpose. But as long as you can tie it to, you know, a great example is be you normally run two trucks to 24 hours. And because the call volume is down 30 or 40 percent, um, you know, you would otherwise in a normal business, you might lay people off or you might cut down the number of trucks. But because you have a large service area to cover, you're concerned about surge and those kinds of things. Um, just because of the wear and tear on the cruise, my gosh, you know, all the added stress, um, you know, you don't want them running 17 calls a ship because of all the requirements to clean the vehicles and that sort of thing. Um, to me, that's a, that's a great, uh, you know, justification of we're going to continue to staff at a higher level, even though the volume's off a little bit for these reasons. And that's definitely COVID related. I would think. Well, the other thing I've talked to some clients about is uh, they've had some people that had to self quarantine because they were exposed yep. and then that took them off the schedule and they suddenly had overtime. So I think, Draw, you know, as long as there's explanation that you can tie that to, to me, that seems like it fits the intent of the requirement. Um, and, and that would be another scenario that potentially would come up. If you, if you always wanted to have a hot tub on the back deck of the base and it, it mysteriously it. shows up yeah. Yeah. in April of 2020, that probably is not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not to have love me to the yeah. proceedings but we listen folks we've been at this for an hour we gotta have a little fun yeah those auditors that come by a year later aren't going to be using that hot tub trust yeah. me <laughs> trust me all right let's go out to wyoming to our friend ron g chuck on the second round application they asked for a payment address is that quick meds payment address or the bank accounts address um I, the guidance that I would give it would be the pay to address that on your Medicare um, PECOS record or the uh, paper form 855B form. Um, and that way the payment will be funneled to the same uh, basic location. So it's really up to you, but um, I believe that you want to remain consistent with whatever's on file with the federal government, which would be your Medicare pay to address. Great. Thank you. Anonymous question, for the lost revenue calculation, can we just use the QMC reports that would report the gross revenue less adjustments, or do we need to also take into account any adjustments on the client's books? Hmm, let me think about that one. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about that too. Well, if adjust, if adjustments would be um, bad debt, you would have to you'd have to take that into account, right? You would think. Yeah, I think just so everybody knows on the call, what's troubling us a little bit is is you all have unique sort of requests of us in terms of what goes in what bucket. Um, you know, some people put their courtesy write-offs. You know, you transport the local firefighter that goes in one type of bucket, one adjustment bucket. And sometimes that goes in a different bucket depending on the client's preference. So, the, I, I, yeah, I think that's one of those where get with your billing director, account manager, yep. have a powwow and talk that through a little bit, especially. And I agree, Ed, because everybody kind of some clients want things done differently that I think it's situational and that those people would know best what your adjustments mean and how they're applied. And I think that discussion would be better had off book here. Um, uh, it just as long as long as you're not overestimating, I think that's the big the 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 thirty thousand level um, uh, recommendation here is just make sure you're you're being conservative in your in your in your numbers because they can verify and will verify for sure. Mary, do you agree with that? That's I always think it's better to be conservative. And I know we were on that one webinar when, you know, there is going to be a different focus on what to provide. And there was reference that you could um, write off certain losses and so on. Um, but I really would strongly caution people not to, to go on the high side, but to submit something that is conservative. Because, you know, if it is too high, then you're going to be in a position of defending it. Okay, thanks. And just uh, for further clarification, if you would like more information, um, especially for those of you writing us anonymously, um, send your uh, that question to COVID help at quickmedclaims.com and then we can take it and uh, help you uh, get you get you answers that we may not uh, be able to come through for you here completely on this webinar. All right, John C asks, if we transport a COVID positive uh, patient and they test negative, can we balance bill them? <laughs> I like how this guy thinks. You got to give him credit, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I guess the, the, my question is, is it at the time of the transport, they were positive? As far as we knew, it was documented in the patient care report. And then there's a, so maybe it was a false positive and they tested negative later, or maybe you know, X amount of days later, they tested negative in a follow-up test. But I, Chuck, I would say if they were positive at the time, then they were positive at the time. Well, if they were positive at the time, yes. If they were a PUI and found later to be not COVID positive, and that was reported back, and I, I can't believe that there'll be too many facilities that report that back. But if they would, then I don't see why they couldn't, but I think that's going to be the exception to the rule. Um, uh, if they're positive at the time, then absolutely. I don't think there's any, any question in my mind of that. Okay. I would just say, you know, if they're positive at the time of transport, that's what you're billing for. You're, you're billing for the services that you rendered at that day. And, and that's what you need to go by. Um, and if it is that they're not really confirmed, but maybe it's only suspected, then I think that's a little bit different because later you can say they, they uh, were negative. Absolutely. 
Great. Just a reminder to all, we've come up on our hour time. We're going to continue to ask questions. We'd recognize that some of you may have to drop off because of your schedules. We understand that. We will be putting these questions, uh, uh, the whole broadcast on our podcast, as well as we will be publishing uh, the Q&A into a uh, hard copy that we can deliver to you electronically. Uh, give us a few days on that. It's not going to happen overnight, uh, but we'll continue on. And I recognize some of you may have to drop off. That's quite all right. Uh, but just drop us a note if you uh, would like the, a hard copy or tune into our podcast. We'll be glad to provide it to you. So this next question, let's go up to uh, our friend in New Hampshire, Chuck H. Does QMC determine that a transported patient is COVID-19 positive or a suspect case by reading the narrative or should EMS services notify QMC directly that a suspected or positive patient was transported? Good question, Chuck. I'm going to let Chuck answer that. <laughs> Chuck H for Chuck H. Okay. Hi, Chuck. How are you? So um, I think it's a combination. Um, your documentation is going to uh, indicate to us the person that you're transporting. So we know that the, the, under, the overlying symptoms of a COVID-19 patient are shortness of breath, uh, fever, and a dry cough. And then there's some, uh, I'll say a half association to GI complications along with those symptoms. So, you know, if we're reading that, we certainly will err on the side of caution. However, if you develop some kind of communication with your billing director, account manager of positive testing and that information and any information you can provide. Also, um, you know, Gary and I do a lot of documentation training. We just want you to make sure that you, um, and I know your troops are very, very stressed, and they're, but, you know, make sure they're documenting well, even into as far as how they're protecting themselves, protecting the patient, what kind of uh, PPE they're wearing, you know, all that will come together to paint the picture. And we always talk about paint the picture in words of your scenario. So um, if they are detailed, as I know, Chuck, you have, you run a great operation up there and they're very good with their documentation. Um, if they're detailed, we're going to be able to pick that up. But if you have some means that you want to develop back and forth and communicating with your account manager and billing director, I don't think they'll, um, they won't welcome that. So I think a combination of both would be a, would be a great way to handle this. Thank you, Chuck. Well, let's head down to Oklahoma to my good friend, Keith L. Great barbecue down there, I might add, for the several times I've been down there. Uh, I understand we can't spend stimulus money on things that are covered by a grant. How will our agency be affected later regarding filing FEMA slash pandemic slash ICS forms for reimbursement, it seems like that you would be double dipping. Would we be for? Excuse me. Would be? Would we be foregoing future FEMA aid? Wow. Well, Ed, I, I, you have more experience in that probably than I do, but I don't know the answer to that now. I don't know if we know. Yeah, I, I think. Look, I, we've said it on the call times today. I think you want to be very, very sure that you're not double dipping. So um, now in a time like this, there's lots of things that are happening. There's lots of additional costs. And so if you've received some FEMA reimbursement associated with something or even local, I think Chuck said it earlier, local emergency management funds or grants, um, you know, please make sure that you're keeping a, uh, the paperwork clear on all that stuff so that you know that you've spent that money. 
um, on whether it's PPE or modifications to the base or trucks or whatever it is that you're doing um, to, to respond to the pandemic. Um, I, I got to believe none of this is a windfall. Um, and so, you know, you guys are taking it over the head on every front, you know, costs, like Chuck said, you know, on, you know, overtime because you have people who are, who are, uh, you know, quarantined and those kinds of things. Um, and so if you have a pretty good accounting system on the cost side of things, which we're not directly involved in with our clients, but we've certainly advised lots of clients over the years in that regard, um, you ought to be able to, um, you know, keep an eye on that and understand where you are with regard to all the various funding sources that are, um, that you've taken advantage of during this crisis. Great. How will QMC know that we have accepted the stimulus and that QMC should not balance bill the COVID patient? We've been asking clients to inform us of that. So please let us know uh, if you've received it and um, you drop us an email to COVID help at quickbedclaims.com. Uh, we're keeping the database of all those clients. So we have to rely on you to let us know. There's no way that we'll know independently. So please do inform us uh, that you did receive it and also that you've chosen to accept it. And then if you do receive the second tranche, I think that's information that would be uh, very well received here and we will need to know that. Thank you, Chuck. Back up to New Hampshire, gentlemen and ladies, my apologies. From Doug D., what are the guidelines for who is considered a PUI? Would this be our choice or an insurance company? <laughs> I don't know what a PUI. Person under investigation. Person under investigation. Oh. Um, um, uh, well, I know our compliance lawyers have, and I, I'll go back to those three and a half criteria, shortness of breath, fever, dry cough, and possible extension in the GI complications. So it, I, I, that is kind of the general over guidance. Um, you may have some commercial insurances that will waiver with those. That seems to be what CMS is coming down with HHS guidance. Uh, so we'll follow the feds. Um, and, and again, we'll look at your documentation. You know, if you can document that the person stated to you when you're on the scene that they were in the presence of somebody who, you know, traveled from Wuhan, China last week, then I think that's a PUI and a pretty good possibility, you know, uh, common kind of commonsensical, uh, but certainly following the, um, and also uh, we've talked to some clients who their um, PSAP, their 911 center, their third party dispatch centers have criteria in place. Many states have criteria in place and, and probing questions now on that PSAP side. So if you're including dispatch information from your 911 center, uh, we certainly will look at that and take that into account if their questions seem to lead us to believe that that person may be a COVID-affected patient. Thank you. Let's go to the western side of New York with our good friend Jill B. She has two questions on essential treat and release asking us if we're hearing anything. One, one issue we are seeing is emergency department MDs are giving medical direction to treat patients at home and not transport to the emergency department. Recent general illness, ER directed patient to be treated with 2,000 cc's of uh, normal saline, Zofran, glucose, et cetera. And if vital, vital signs were stabilized, the patient was to stay at home. Have we heard anything about this at all, folks? Anything? Yeah. And so, hey, Joe, great to hear from you. I hope you're doing well up there. I haven't seen you in a while, but it's uh, thanks for being on the call. 
uh, you're right, this is happening all across the healthcare continuum. And we're seeing this not just in the ambulance world, but you know, most primary care practices for all intents and purposes are clinically shelter in place. And they're doing tons of thing via, things via telemedicine where prior to that they were, they were doing live visits. And so there has been some on the primary care on the provider um, um, side, there has been some relaxation of those, uh, of those criteria to allow for some telemedicine situations to be reimbursed at a higher rate, for example, at the normal in-office visit rate. But in our world, there's not any change in what's permissible under the ambulance world. So I think Chuck mentioned it earlier, um, you know, if there's a telemedicine reimbursement to that ER doc um, for the services that you and he or she are providing jointly, um, maybe the source of revenue there is to talk to the emergency physician group about sharing in that telemedicine reimbursement because you are their eyes and ears in the field. But on the ambulance side of the ledger, other than if there's a treat and release um, a demonstration project or some specific treat and release um, uh, arrangement with commercial payers, for example, like around the country, there are a ton of these of long before COVID came that were in place. Um, a number of commercial payers have recognized the value of the work that we do uh, in a pre-hospital setting that can help avoid not only unnecessary transports, but unnecessary ER visits and unnecessary defensive medicine admissions and so on. Um, and so, you know, if there's not a program in place in your area that you can get reimbursed under, the typical ambulance reimbursement doesn't really apply. Great. Thank you, Ed. Getting lots of questions, and we really do appreciate you folks staying on with us. We're doing our best to get through all of them, and we're thankful that you are asking questions. I've said this to Chuck and Ed and many others. I don't worry so much about the people who are asking the questions. I worry about the people who aren't online, who aren't asking questions, who aren't ringing our phone. This is a serious, serious matter and one that you have to take uh, a lot of thought with and a lot of heed to. So uh, thank you for the questions. We'll continue on and keep moving along here. Got a few more. We are getting back to Jill again, going back to New York. We're getting several public assist calls via 911 because home health aides are not going to residents' homes. These are all obviously non-transport ports, but we are essentially doing work that other services normally do lifting, moving, changing clothes, assisting in showers in the bathroom. My goodness, Jill, is there billable options for this that wouldn't be punishing the patient for the fact that their aid service is not available? Yeah, I think that books back to our previous answer that yeah. Ed just said. I, I'm afraid not, Jill. That's yep. it's too bad, but yep. right now I don't see an avenue unless it's regional and a, a local payer that's recognized in Trigo Transport. Yeah. Hey, but don't forget, keep track of that cost. I mean, again, yes. going back to the previous question about cost, I mean, you're providing a lot of in-kind service. There's a true cost to your organization. So make sure that you're tracking those calls in some form or fashion, you know, probably through your dispatch software or through your patient care report software so you can present those on the backside. Yeah, and those of you that are chosen this year for cost data collection, um, keep these costs. Um, this is a great way to demonstrate to Congress that our costs can just balloon overnight. Um, so if there's any silver lining to this cloud, it's the fact that we're gonna be able to demonstrate to them that in a snap of a finger, we can be incurring costs that take our balance sheets into places where we never dreamed they would be right now. So uh, if for nothing more, when you're reporting that, make sure you have a carve out of that 
Um, I know there's been some discussion that possibly um, the cost data collection tool will even ask for some accounting separately of COVID costs. Um, we don't know that for sure, but uh, this is a great way to demonstrate to them, hey guys, look, some, something like this comes up and, and, and everything, everything goes to you know where in a handbasket, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, let's move across those New York state lines over into Connecticut. Deb L writes, how does QMC plan on handling who has the final say on when a balance that is not collectible under these stimulus rules is written off? That's easy. It's always finally up to you. We, we never make that final determination. We follow your charity care guidelines, your write-off policy, your even uh, you know patient uh, payment plans. Um, and so, you're please work with your team, your quick med team that's assigned to you, and and just you know make sure that you're keeping an open dialogue. But they should be presenting those cases to you for final approval. Right. Okay, we have never received an email. Welcome to the club on this one. We have never received an email from HHS when the stimulant payment was received, so we were not aware that we had to accept or return it until we received the original email from QMC. So uh, I will tell you that on the day that the stimulus payments came through, what was like this? I think the first day was like the 17th, wasn't it, Chuck? No, April 10th. April 10th. April 10th. Yep. Uh, I was on my way to work and my phone started ringing, and people were asking me, <laughs> I just got X dollars in my checking account and I have no idea where it came from. And those calls continued through the next day into the next week and even still continue today. So um, there wasn't any notification. It was Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, here's the money. But like everything else, we all know there's strings attached. So there wasn't any notice on the first round. Second round's a little bit different. First round, surprise. Um, Deb, you don't have to apologize for typos. That's quite all right. So, all right. Amy W., follow-up question. Are municipalities denying transport to all COVID-concerned patients? Their stance is exactly what you expressed. They cannot adequately protect their contracted transport agency, but they are taking it a step further, stating that to disclose the possible COVID status to the wheelchair van company would violate HIPAA. Would getting that in writing do anything to support medical necessity? Well, first of all, HIPAA guidelines have been very relaxed very with regards to this. Mary, go ahead, you, you have some yeah. knowledge of this. Yeah, there, there's a provision under HIPAA when there is a, a public health emergency and it's declared, which this certainly is, and it allows um, providers and covered entities to share more information so that when you become aware that someone has COVID-19, you actually have an obligation to, um, you know, kind of prevent continued spread and it's at risk of the public. So that, um, that agency or that organization does have an obligation under HIPAA to let that driver know that they may now be exposed. So um, under the old, you know, maybe this was a situation that happened in the very beginning before it was declared. You know, I don't know about the timing, but I can tell you that it has been relaxed now for quite some time. Thank you. Brian D, just south of the border from good old PA. If you have a large out of network commercial payer mix or a large uninsured population, wouldn't it make sense to accept the first round? Um, 
I think it goes back to Mary's discussion about the typical payer mix won't exist because people are experiencing financial difficulty. So uh, if you have a large uninsured population and you know that the area industries that are supporting the, that your area are closed right now, no one's working, you're, you know your area better than we do, but a large majority of people filed for unemployment, then I think it's safe to say that by accepting the funds, it may be less than what you normally would get, but will you be able to collect from folks who are right now just worried about necessities, buying food, paying their bills? Uh, so, so I think if, if I were in that situation, and um, I would weigh heavily on accepting what is in my hand as opposed to what I cannot count on later on. And that would be unique to your payer mix. So I would say probably yes, but again, I don't know your particular area right now. Uh, so those facts elude us, but, but if that's the case that you're explaining it, I think there would be a high probability of my, if I were in your shoes, accepting that uh, because it is dollars that I can count on right now. Chuck, let's go over the valley and through the woods down to Gary L's house we know. In calculating, we got to try to interject some humor here, guys. Bear with us. In calculating losses, the average income per call in reference period March of 2019 and April 2020 seems like a clean comparison. Um, in calculating losses, the average income per call in reference period three March 19 to March and April 2020 seems like a complete. Does that seem like a clean comparison? Yeah, I think there, that's what there, he's asking. There are two methods I think that you can compute potential losses and tie them together. One would be is if you have a budget, how far you're off budget. The other would be year to date versus year to date. So I think Gary, you're right. And, and Ed, again, jump in here, but uh, there, there's only two ways to compute loss and that would be looking at what was last year and looking this year and what's the variable change. Well, it's COVID. Right primarily, or how far you're off from what your projections were in your reasonable assumptions under your budget. Yeah, and there's two, two components there, and he touched on it. One is um, the average reimbursement per call is likely to go down because the, the, the patient out-of-pocket portion of reimbursement that our clients are seeing is going down because of a lot more patients with the inability. Like you said, they're trying to put food on the table. This is a tough time, even paying co-pays and things like that. And the second thing is volume declines, 20, 30, 40, 50%. So it's not just the reimbursement per transport. That's going down, but also the total number of transport transports is going down, which, which makes a double whammy on reimbursement. So I, Chuck's right. Last year's revenue in the month in this time period, this year's revenue in this time period gives you a is going to should give you a pretty substantial negative spread for almost all of our clients. Great. Uh, I have to, I'm humored by this question. Monica? This question is, I'd like to hear from Monica. She must have something to add. Let me tell you <laughs> folks something. There is, out of the panel of five people you see sitting here, that woman is probably the most important element of this entire panel. She yes, is she sitting is. and writing the answers as we give them to each of the questions. Uh, so you notice she's on mute because she is literally smoking that keyboard. Thank you, Monica. We applaud you for the help. So. Um, and she is one of our great billing directors. She's a wealth of knowledge, but she agreed to, to pinch hit for us in this regard. So thank you for that. 
And thank you for the question because she has a lot to add. She's very talented. <laughs> yes, all right. A long time. One of the one of the earliest employees here. Exactly right. We love her. Yeah, all right. Getting through the end here, gentlemen and ladies. What is the deadline to reject the stimulus money? John C. asked that question. 30 days from the day it showed up in your bank account. Very good. Okay, uh, Alisa H. again. How is potential COVID patient defined? For example, number one, person with a sprained ankle who happens to have a cough. Two, MVC patient who is treated for shortness of breath. Three, stroke patient with recent GI symptoms. How do you classify patients like these and in the absence of COVID testing? Um, well, go ahead, Mary. I, I was just gonna um, mention that, you know, the information they were talking about signs and symptoms and the codes to use for that, you know, if there's a cough, if there's um, some type of shortness of breath. And then when you get into um, whether or not they have been potentially exposed, maybe someone in their family um, was exposed. So then you might have to put them in, it's a suspicion of that they may have been exposed to COVID. So I think it's really more of a judgment call. And, you know, the one with the, the broken ankle or whatever, I would assume that, you know, there, there was no risk if, if you went through a series of health questions um, with that person. So then it doesn't fall under the COVID-19 pieces. Chuck, if you have anything else? It books back to your documentation. I was thinking here, you know, the MVA patient with shortness of breath, if all of your documentation points to that's trauma related, then I don't think we're going to draw um, a big wide net here and, and cast that as a COVID. But if you're saying that the patient uh, had minor uh, accident injuries from the MVA, but that they relayed to you that they were on the, and I'm really stretching here, but they were on the way to the urgent care center because they've had a fever of 103.5 for the last two days, then I think that would be something that we'd have to take a look at. But it, it's really going to book back to what your crews are putting on that PCR. And if all your documentation seems to be trauma related, then I don't think anybody here at QMC is going to say, oh, no, wait a minute. That's a shortness of breath. We're going to COVID that, you know. Um, we're going to use common sense here too, but it's really going to tail back to the picture that you paint in words in your written narrative and the uh, drop-down menus that you choose. Um, and I know a lot of the PCR programs are actually throwing in by, I know New York required it. Um, uh, a lot of the state bridges uh, are requiring there be COVID drop-down. So if you're not choosing those drop-down menus, then I don't think uh, we're, we're going to stretch. But if you choose those appropriate, um, you know, those appropriate drop downs and you're also including um, any kind of discussion that there was a possible um, exposure, then I think we have no choice. Thanks. Last question from Lisa B. Is there a way to get a complete copy of the updates that were sent out weekly about the COVID-19 issues? Yes, Lisa, we're glad. First off, we're really glad that you read the updates. Uh, we put a lot of time and effort into making sure the information is concise and not long and lengthy because we realize that you folks are trying to take care of the sick and injured and keep your operation alive. And there's just so many emails and information coming. We've tried to shorten it up and then put links on certain things that you can read. So thank you uh, for asking for these. 
I would ask one favor though, if you can just drop us a uh, note at COVID help at quickmedclaims.com, uh, we'll see that we get you all the current and back copies out. So you'll have lots of fun reading to do there. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have it for you. And with that, I think that covers the last question. Uh, we did go over and we still have about uh, two thirds of our group stayed with us. I apologize. Um, the questions were great. Thank you all so much. It means a lot to us um, that you ask these questions. Uh, again, this is, a re this is recorded. We will have this available on our podcast channel, uh, QMC's EMS Board and Caller. It's on iTunes, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iHeart. Just search there for them. Give us a couple days and we'll also get the hard copy out. So to my colleagues, um, Chuck Humphrey at Marasco, uh, Mary Craig, and of course, the famous of all, Monica. Monica DePaul. Thank you very much for coming. We have another session tonight at 7 p.m. So if you're under lock and key like this young man is, hey, register. We can do this all over again. Um, but thank you for joining us. Wish you all a great day. And as we end every communication that we put out there for our people, I'll just say, hey, be careful out, out there. there.